0: If you have a copy of God's Word, you can turn to 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, and as you're turning to it, I have a question for you. Um, by a show of hands, um, how many of you have been ever been having a conversation with someone and you've heard the following phrase, I love Jesus, but maybe you're having a conversation with a, a coworker about religion, maybe you're sharing the gospel with a neighbor, or maybe you're, you know, extending an Easter invitation to a family member, and their response is is some variation of, I love Jesus, but, I love Jesus, but I, I cuss a little, I love Jesus, but I drink a little, I love Jesus, but I gamble a little, or I'm, I'm, I'm pro-Jesus, I'm, I'm for Jesus, but I'm definitely not a, a saint, I'm, I'm not a, a church person. You know, I like some of his teachings, but I don't really see how his teaching is relevant to my day-to-day life. And you've probably heard these statements before, because often here in the South, the church can be, you know, 10,000 miles wide and 10 inches deep. We have many cultural Christians who will wax poetic about their love and devotion to Jesus, but then their lives will tell a different story. And honestly, these these I love Jesus, but statements are are similar to a teenage boy breaking up with a teenage girl by saying, I love you, but I'm not in love with you. You know, Jennifer, I, I love you so much, but also I'm dumping you. And in a few weeks, when the dust settles, I'm planning on asking out one of your best friends. And so, more than likely, you've you've heard this this phrase from from someone in your life. And and unfortunately, the most common version of it is probably "I love Jesus, but I don't love His church." And this statement usually comes with a lot of baggage, because when someone says I love Jesus, but I don't love his church they're They're implying that the Church has become an unrecognizable institution which which is is influenced more by the world than the teachings in the New Testament. They're implying the church is full of of hypocrites who are one person on Sunday and a different person Monday through Saturday. They're implying that the church is a history of saying and doing the wrong thing at the wrong time, which leaves a legacy of of scarred and broken former church members. They're implying the church not only struggles with reaching the world for the gospel, but many times is an obstacle for doing so. And often, they aren't wrong. I've said before that that Jesus doesn't have a PR problem, but his church definitely does. Because he's perfect and we're far from it. We can be hypocritical. We can be prideful, we can be selfish, we can be dishonest, we can be quick-tempered, we can be unkind, we can be unpleasant. We're an imperfect people who are chasing the standard of a perfect Savior, so we're always going to fall short in one way or another. But the fact remains that you cannot separate Christ from his church. In Ephesians 5, when, when Paul is giving uh, principles for Marriage, he writes, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and presenting her to himself as a radiant church without stain or or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. And so if you say you love the groom, you must tolerate bride. Now, Now, you can have your issues with the bride. You can have your frustrations with the bride. You can have your negative thoughts about the bride. You can even wonder, what in the world does Jesus see in her? Why would he sacrifice so much for her? Why would he extend unconditional, reckless love to her? And you can go to that place but you can't turn your back on the bride. If you love the groom, you can't spurn the bride. And look, you may have had moments, you may have had seasons in your life where you were tempted to detach or or disconnect or outright abandon the church. You may have had these these moments of realization where you're, you're reading the New Testament, you're studying the New Testament, and you're looking at, at, at what's described there versus what you're seeing and you're thinking to yourself, man, the modern church looks nothing like the early church. They were devoted to teaching, fellowship, service, worship and sharing the gospel in every corner of, of the Roman Empire and we're doing some of those things, but we aren't making the same impact. We aren't seeing the, the same results. And I get it. If you, if you've ever If you've ever gone to that place, I I understand. I mean, do you know that tomorrow is is the one year anniversary of our final pre-COVID Sunday morning? Like I can promise you that early in 2020, we had we had grand plans. And we established checkpoints, we crafted goals, we finalized a calendar, and we built a a strategy based on strengthening the discipleship inside the church and bolstering the evangelism outside the church. And then in the second week of March, everything changed. Churches started closing their doors on March, after March 8th, and some, like us, after March 15th, March 13th, Brian Kemp closed school. So when you reflect on, on on just the last year, you know, you may experience some frustration or disappointment about the perceived lack of gospel movement among us. And we can say that, that we're certainly not where we want to be, but we're not where we used to be either. And so this morning, as we gather together, you know, 12 months after the beginning of the year of COVID. We're going to get back to the, to the basics and, and focus our attention on one of the primary functions of our, our fellowship. In our passage this morning, Peter maintains that, that one of the defining characteristics of a New Testament church and one of the defining characteristics of a Christ follower is love. And so in these last four verses of chapter 1, he, he shifts from from how Christians should relate to the world to how Christians should relate to one another. So let's read it together, starting in verse 22. Peter writes, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So in verse 22, Peter gives another command. Love one another earnestly from a pure Part. Now, remember that the first half of, of chapter 1 recounts what God has done, and the second half of chapter reveals how, how you should respond. So, in verses 1 through 12, Peter traces how God has, has worked out your salvation in the past, present, and future. In the past, he frees you from the penalty of sin. In the present, he is freeing you from the power of sin. In the future, he will free you from the presence of sin. And then in 13 through 17, after, after praising God for, for what he has done, he, he moves back to the human perspective and starts giving commands um, for your, your time on earth is an exile. And in verse uh, 13, he says, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In verse 15, he says, be holy in all your behavior. And in verse 17, he says, conduct yourself with fear. And then now, in verse 22, he says, love one another. So it's it's live in hope, live in holiness, live in fear, and live in love. And a couple weeks ago, we talked about how those, those first three commands are, are a steady increase in difficulty for us. You know, John Piper says that With each of these commands, Peter moves farther and farther away from the temperament of the modern world, and with each command, we can count on less and less natural sympathy from us for what he says. And now, at first glance this morning, it appears that the pattern is is breaking here. After all, love one another is, is a New Testament principle that that we're familiar with, and but while it may be simple to understand, it can be extremely difficult to execute. You know, all of us are familiar with the ever deepening division in the secular world. I think we saw that this week with the passage of the COVID relief bill. And it showed just how deep the divide runs. I mean, depending on your politics and your preferred... News outlet, you either heard the bill framed as a historic American victory or a complete disaster. For one side, it was a huge win. For the another side, it was a massive loss because many of these folks are just living in different realities. They see everything through the lens of their political agenda. and it's not just politics the last five or six years, we've watched as animosity and belligerence and violence have have raged all around us for a variety of issues. And we should be concerned with the division that we're seeing and experiencing in the world. But I read an article this week by by Kevin DeYoung, and, and he argues that we should be even more concerned about the divisions that we see within the church. And in his view, you know, he says that, that, that the church right now, the evangelical world, is, is splintering into four factions. But what's interesting is, is these lines are not being drawn based on disagreements about doctrine. They're, they're not being drawn based on differing views of, of theology. Rather, they're being drawn based on cultural moods, political instincts, and personal sensibilities. They're they're, they're grounded in, 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 in different views on how the church should approach race, how the church should approach politics, how the church should approach gender, how the church should approach any number of issues. And so, basically, all four of these groups fit under the umbrella of of, of conservative evangelicalism, and they all agree on the basic tenets of the Christian faith, they disagree on how the church should respond to various problems in the world. And, and I think that the young is on to something here. You know, I remember seeing this a couple years ago, um, whenever the the Southern Baptist Convention had, had the, the big sex scandal that the Houston Chronicle reported on. I don't know if you remember this or not, it was February 10th, 2019, the Houston Chronicle released a bombshell investigative report about widespread abuse within the member churches of the Southern Baptist Convention. They traced back to 1998, and they found roughly 400 pastors, lay leaders, and volunteers who who had faced allegations for sexual misconduct. You know, and the horrifying reality is they didn't find everyone. And so this was a moment of of reckoning for the SBC. This was a moment for the SBC to to step up and and to right these wrongs and to put policies in place and and to fix the problem. You know, and we we still have work to do even today, but for the last two years, the the leadership of the convention has been doing the work. They've labored to to reform policies and procedures to help protect victims and, and weed out abusers within their member churches. But when the story first broke two years ago, the responses were all over the map. Some called for a strict stance. They said the church must step up. The church must own this scandal. Let's believe all the victims. Let's call out all the perpetrators and and anyone who is, is, is helping them or enabling them. But others went the other way. With a softer stance. They said, Listen, this is a this is a real tragedy, but you know, it's also a real tragedy when innocent people are are accused of, of, of heinous crimes. So let's let's pump the brakes a little bit. And the rest fell somewhere in the middle. They said, Let's weep with those who weep, let's sympathize with the victims and commit to doing better. And others said, Let's pursue. Justice, but let's consider each case and accusation based on its own merit. And again, all these leaders were, were part of the same convention. They they adhere to the same Baptist faith and message. They have the same beliefs about the inerrancy and authority of Scripture. They they strive towards fulfilling the same great commandment and great commission, but they don't agree on everything. As the young puts it, in many instances, we can agree on paper, but be miles apart in posture and practice. And we've seen this in the secular world, but we've seen this in the church too. The last two election cycles have shown us this. If George Floyd has shown us this, the coronavirus has shown us this. And let's clarify. You know, we're we're talking in, in broad strokes here. And we, we bring it back to our level. You know, we may not have blatant, obvious divisions within this body of believers at the moment. But what I want you to see is that at any time that you have a collection of Christ followers who come from different backgrounds, who work different jobs, who value different things, who have different ideas, you're going to experience disagreement along the way. And we'll have periods where it's not especially easy to love one another. Because consistently loving one another is easier said than done. It's easy for us to understand the principle, but it's much harder for us to apply the principle. But our primary goal should be advocating for both. Our primary goal should be discovering how we can champion understanding the principle and applying the principle. It should be learning how we can overcome potential differences. It should be pinpointing how we can consistently and continually abound in love for one another. In all circumstances. And so in our passage, Peter contends that Christ's followers can rise above their differences by revisiting their similarities. And he provides four reasons for unity within the church. And I'm going to go through those with you. First, we love one another because we're united by the same testimony. Now, generally speaking, we don't believe all testimonies are created equal. In every print issue of, of Christianity Today, they devote the back of their page to stories of, of Christian conversion. Every December, they'll they'll compile a list of their, their most popular uh, stories for the year, the ones that are shared the most, the ones that are read the most. And uh, I just want to share with you a few taglines from a previous list. These are just the taglines for, for, for the testimonies of, of some of these conversions. The first one is, I grew up a fervent evangelist for Islam, now I'm living out the book of Acts. The next one, I, I was a gang leader who marked people for death until Jesus marked me for life. My name was on the federal most wanted list, now it's written in the book of life. I was a new age healer. Then I realized I wasn't the one doing the healing. I assumed science had all the answers. Then I started asking inconvenient questions. For most of us, our testimonies of faith are are much more understated. The tagline for my story would be, I was born into a devoted Christian family. Who attended church every week and then at eight years old I walked the aisle. (laughs) And listen, I'm grateful for my faith foundation. I'm grateful for being born into a family of of devoted Christian believers, but my story isn't fascinating. If you put my story beside those other stories, you're not clicking my link. You're going to read about the former Islamic evangelist. You're going to read about the former gang member, and you're going to bypass the account of the eight-year-old in the Bible belt who made a statistically probable decision. And I don't blame you. I would do the same thing. Now, some salvation stories have these dark jaded undertones of helplessness and despair, and then Jesus comes in like a hero and and does something extraordinary. He steps into an unlikely space at an unlikely time, and he saves an unlikely person. But for most of us, our, our testimony is much more sanitized. But we should recognize that in God's economy, every Testimony of faith is equally miraculous. Because every testimony of faith involves God moving someone from death to life. And so the reality is... Whether you're a man who, who met Jesus on a cold winter night in a truck stop as you're coming down from a drug-induced high and contemplating suicide, or if you're a young girl who met Jesus on a warm spring morning at your grandma's church as you were impatiently waiting for the post-service fried chicken dinner, you experience the same rebirth. Look at verse 22. Peter says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since, or because, you have been born again. I like how R.C. Sproul describes this, this process of being born again in his commentary. He says that regeneration or rebirth is the result of the immediate work of the Holy Spirit upon the human soul. In a moment... In one moment, you were dead to the things of God, and in the next moment, you had new life in Christ. The Spirit has raised you from spiritual death, quickened your soul, and given you an affection for God that does not come naturally to you. You're not simply given the potential for change. You've become a changed person. You have no activity in it. You cannot make yourself born again. You can't choose to be born again. You know, and you may want to push back a little bit on, on Sproul's assessment, and you may say, well, what about free will? What about human responsibility? What about repenting and believing in the gospel? And if you want to go down that rabbit hole into a deeper conversation, I want you to know that I'm, I'm here for it. I'll take you to lunch. I'll take you to coffee and we will unravel the mystery of god's sovereignty and human accountability and how they work together but for now let's stay on track because peter doesn't discount human responsibility in acts 2 when he finishes his most famous sermon the sermon at pentecost It says that that many of the Jews were there were cut to the heart, and they said, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter said, Repent and believe. Repent and believe, every one of you, in the name of Christ. So Peter understands that human responsibility is is part of all this, but but throughout chapter 1, he's focusing on, on praising God for his part in salvation. He wants to be clear that your your testimony starts with God. Your your salvation story starts with God. Remember in verse 2, he said, The Father foreknew you. And before he created light, before he put the sun and, and the stars and the moon in the sky, before he separated the land and the sea, before he made a single organism, he adopted you. He chose you. He set his love on you. And verse 3 continues and says that he chose you according to his great mercy. Not not your good works, not your commitment, not your potential, not your talent, not your knowledge. He chose you according to his great mercy, and he caused you to be born again to a living hope. And so if you're in Christ, and as you're you're walking into deeper fellowship with God, you should naturally progress toward a deeper sense of gratitude for God. Honestly, in in my own spiritual journey, in in my 23 years of of following Christ, when when I reflect on this season, I'm becoming less and less impressed with my track record. I'm becoming less impressed with what I had to do with any of it, and I'm becoming more and more overwhelmed with God's grace. Like Peter is writing chapter 1 from a simil- similar posture. As he thinks back to the highs and, and lows, those those really high highs and those devastating lows of his time following Jesus, his only response to all of it is praise and worship. He simply can't believe That God chose him, that God adopted him, that God loved him. And so we should be united by that same humility. And second, we love one another because we're united by the same eternal destination. Peter continues that in verse 23, that you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. What that means is that if you're in Christ, you're not getting rid of any of these other people that are in Christ. John Newton is uh, definitely most famous for writing the hymn Amazing Grace. Um, but he has an incredible uh, story. He, he served as captain of, of slave ships for the British Empire as a young man. And then after he retired, he continued to invest heavily in the slave trade until he became a follower of Christ. And once he found Christ, once Christ saved him, he spent the rest of his days fighting for the abolition of slavery in the British Empire. In 1771, uh, Newton wrote something else that's not as famous as Amazing Grace, but it's something that's circulated in, in churches over the years uh, he wrote an article for a british periodical called gospel magazine and they asked him to provide counsel for for pastors there was a big theological controversy that was going on in, in great britain at the time and there were a lot of pastors who had differing views on a particular theological issue and so newton published this article that was titled on controversy and this this really has served as a a gold standard for thoughtfully and carefully handling disagreements among brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I just want to read a short excerpt to you where, where Newton writes about viewing your opponent uh, through the lens of eternity. He writes, If you count him a believer, though greatly mistaken in the subject of debate between the two of you, then deal with him gently for my sake. The Lord loves him and bears with him Therefore, you should not despise him or treat him harshly. And the Lord bears with you likewise and expects that you should show tenderness to others from a sense of forgiveness you need yourself. In a little while, you'll meet him in heaven, and he will then be dearer to you than the nearest friend you have upon this earth is to you now. Anticipate that period in your thoughts, and though you may find it necessary, To oppose his errors, view him personally as a kindred soul with whom you're happy, or to be happy in Christ forever. And so Newton says, brother in Christ, sister in Christ, sometimes you'll disagree with one another. Sometimes you'll disagree with your pastor. But when you do, take a position of humility. You should view your, your brother or sister in Christ not as an opponent or an adversary or the obstruction that's hindering you from proving your motion on the floor of a church business meeting, but instead view them as a kindred soul who, like you, has been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. And so we love one another because we're united by the same testimony. And we're united by the same eternal destination. And third, we love one another because we're united by the same truth. In other words, as, as verse 23 puts it, we're united through the living and abiding word of God. And so let's look at these two two adjectives of Scripture a little bit further. First, Peter says God's Word is, is living. That, that Scripture is, is active. Scripture is sufficient for every part of our lives. 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be confident, competent, Equipped for every good work. You know that there are corners of the, the universal church where they approach the Bible like I approach a salad bar. They gravitate towards the parts that bring them comfort and they run away from the parts that bring them discomfort. But all of Scripture is sufficient. Every page is full of insight. Every page is full of wisdom. Every page is full of application. Every page showcases a fallen and sinful people in desperate need of a Savior. You know, the problems of the Old Testament and the New Testament are still the problems today. A brother who is addicted to internet pornography is no different than David when he lusted after Bathsheba. A couple who are compulsive liars are no different than Ananias and Sapphira when they lied to Peter, and, and a sister who struggles with jealousy is no different than Saul when he had rejected a jealous when he reject when he reached excuse me a jealous anger after David was anointed, and so the world has changed, but the human heart hasn't. And if we want to be obedient to the truth, we have to preach it, teach it, study it, discuss it, read it, pray through it, sing it, and meditate on it. Obedience to the truth is cultivated through knowledge of the truth. And so conforming to the image of of the Son starts with engaging actively with His Word. And Peter also says that God's Word is abiding. Abiding means enduring persisting, continuing. Do you remember back in the day when we purchased newspapers from a box? This may still be a thing. I, I don't know. I, I did no research on this uh, but but you, you remember when you, you, you purchase a newspaper in front of a coffee shop or a grocery store and you put a quarter into it, and then you, you 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 pulled the handle down, and then you'd find not one, but you know, 20 or 25 newspapers inside. And as a young child, I never understood this business plan because I'm sitting there thinking, you know, you pay for one newspaper, and you can take 21 newspapers. I mean, you could you could create a black market for local newspapers. And they couldn't do anything about it. And this never made sense to me. But do you know why they did that? Because newspaper publishers were not concerned with theft because they understood basic supply and demand. They knew their newspapers had value for a day. But they would lose significant value on the next day because no one cares about yesterday's news. And the 24-hour news cycle has shown us that. So the news decreases in value, but Peter says God's word will never decrease in value. He uses the prophet Isaiah in verse 24 to argue that the word of the Lord is forever. It's eternal. It's everlasting. It's it's endless. It's forever. But the world is, is temporary. Isaiah says people are like grass, they're glorious like flowers. The grass will wither and the flower will fade and the Word will remain. And this living and abiding Word is is the connective tissue that holds all of us together. And we will occasionally disagree about certain issues, but we can always agree on the Gospel. And we see this clearly illustrated with a couple of Christ's disciples. You know, Jesus had one disciple named Simon the Zealot, and he had another disciple named Matthew the Tax Collector. And you probably know from those titles that these two guys didn't get along with one another. They didn't see eye to eye on many of the issues. They certainly disagreed on how the Jews should be responding to, to the growing power of ancient Rome. As a zealot, Simon believed the Jews should revolt against their oppressors. As a tax collector, Matthew believed the Jews should coexist with their oppressors. They should comply with their oppressors. Simon thought war with Rome was the best course of action, and Matthew thought compliance with Rome was the best course of action. So they had these deep-rooted, fundamental disagreements, but ultimately... Their love for the Word, their love for the Word who became flesh, unified them more than their political ideologies divided them. Because the Word is living and abiding, we can rally around it. We can find unity in the gospel. And we can overlook Division based on secondary issues. And finally, last thing, we love one another because we're united by the same mission. You know, this morning I'm wearing my Four lounge t-shirt, and I realized that it's a little bit inconsistent. Because our vision, as we as we talked about in January, of being four louns involves, you know, shifting our focus from the inside of the church to the outside of the church. It, it's shrinking the gap between us and and them. It's, it's changing the narrative for those who believe the church isn't for them because the church isn't for them. It's praying intentionally. It's giving generously. It's going relentlessly into our community. And so, in a way, my shirt says, "Let's." Love those on the outside. And my sermon says, let's love those on the inside. And this seems a little bit contradictory, but it's not. Loving others and loving one another is not either or, it's both and. These concepts are not in competition. These concepts are complementary. In his book, mark of a Christian, Francis Schaeffer, argued that the sincere brotherly love that Peter's talking about in verse 22 should be something that that characterizes all believers. You know, in John 13, Christ gave the world permission to judge the genuineness of our faith on the basis of our love. In the upper room, he said to the disciples, love one another just as I have loved you. By this, by this love, all people will know you're my disciples. And then several chapters later, in chapter 17, during the high priestly prayer, he raised the stakes even higher. He prayed that the disciples may become perfectly one, that they may become perfectly unified, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. And so Schaeffer suggests that Christ is also giving those outside the church permission to judge the reliability of the gospel on the basis of the love and unity displayed by those inside the church. And that should make you a little bit uncomfortable. Church, Easter is three weeks away. And Lord willing, our attendance in 2021 will be far better than our attendance in 2020. Because last year only two showed up for the 11 a.m. service. It was me and a camera. And the camera was not a good audience. And so as we gather in a few weeks on April 4th to celebrate the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we may have some unfamiliar faces among us. We may have some new faces among us. And I hope that we do. You know, and we should welcome them with the same sincere Brotherly love that we extend to one another. Because the truth is this. Before they encounter Jesus, they will encounter his church. Before they meet him, they'll meet you. So don't be a roadblock on their path to the cross. Be a four-lane highway. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you for your word and, and Lord we know that this 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 sincere devoted love that we should have for one another is only possible because you first showed this kind of love to us. And so we, we thank you for your son, the word that became flesh and, and dwelt among us and and took our sin to the cross and Died the death that we deserve so we might regain fellowship with you. Lord, we thank you for that gospel. And so, Father, I I, I pray that we would always keep that, that big picture gospel perspective in all things. Lord, that we would would fight and and bicker over gospel issues and let the secondary issues go. Lord, help us to do that. And Father, we know that we've been given the the task of of taking your gospel into Lowndes County. and We know that our, our love for one another Can become this this irresistible fragrance to our community. And so Father, as we abound in in love for one another and care for one another, and we bear each other's burdens. Father, we ask that you would you would bring along others to to serve alongside us. And so Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.